HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm joined by Taylor Lanzette and Maddie Rotman, co-founders of Anytime Spritz, the new farm-to-can cocktail created with 100% regenerative wheat and fruit directly sourced from small-scale farmers. While Anytime is at the beginning of its CPG journey, Taylor and Maddie are heavy hitters when it comes to sustainability and supply chain, having worked at companies like Chipotle, Imperfect, Fresh Direct, and Daily Harvest. So welcome, Maddie and Taylor. Thanks for having us. So glad to be here. Yes, I'm really happy to have you both here. And it is a little on the early side, but I don't think I've ever had a cocktail Mm. show. And I don't think I've ever had a canned cocktail. And you're definitely the only farm-to-can cocktail. Um. And also, I think, you know, right now there's so much um, confusion around how we're supposed to be so much more sustainable and yet also be so much less expensive, all of us in the CPG world. Um, So I have questions around that for you too. Um, All that being said, I'm thrilled that you're here and welcome. Thanks. We're so glad we can be your first on so many occasions. I know. I like it. Um, Okay. So we're going to go back into the, you know, founder's story a little bit. And basically my, my research um, taught me that you met in college, which I think is great. Did you meet freshman year? Uh, I was a sophomore and Maddie was a freshman. And you met at an intro to environmental studies class and then did you both just decide you wanted to be in supply chain from that class? Like, was that a conscious yeah. choice? <laughs> it's true. So I was Maddie's uh, TA to an environmental oh. studies 101. I love a it. True freshman lectures, you know, style right. class gave you an overview of how society touches climate from agriculture to econ to policy to waste. Um, but we both end, did end up majoring in environmental studies with a focus on food systems and food policy. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because when we were in school, they almost got rid of the major because yeah. they see its value, which right. you know motivated every young climate justice at, you know activist. Right. And we fought tooth and nail for it. But you know, I feel like now Gen Z would be appalled to know that. We had to fight for that, uh, you know, major. Yeah. Uh, 
because we were so sure at the time it was the most important thing for our generation to study, to mitigate, to act on. We were so right. sure of that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because, you know, my my master's program, which is food studies, has like a food systems piece to it. Um, and when I talk about, I mean, still if people are like, what? You know, like it's, yeah. and I, and I think at the time, I mean, NYU, I don't know if they're, if they've created many more programs around food policy and food systems, but it's, it's crazy to me that we wouldn't. I mean, it's one of the biggest industries in the country and yet there isn't really any connection being made really between sort of, you know, people are talking about the environment in kind of this like large, big way, but you know, there's a lot in between sort of like don't eat meat ever again. And like, actually here are a couple of more things you can do just as a consumer that might make things a little better. A, cook more. That's my, my shtick, just plugging my, my own little personal thing. You know, I think so many of the environmental studies and sort of food systems people at Brown, we were so lucky. We actually, Taylor and I ran a CSA together there. Um, it was called Brown Market Shares. It's still going, powered mm-hmm. all the students still making it happen. But it was, you know, sort of the first of its kind um, mm-hmm. for a university to run a food hub and to really work <laughs> with local growers and bring mm-hmm. farmers every week to build farm shares that students, faculty, and staff could buy into. Right, um, And it was really that sort of nexus of there's all these environmental studies students who don't know how to put the change to the food system. Right. The acad- academia doesn't really exist yet. And they're running a CSA. We're running a food hub to actually make the change possible. And that was sort of the aha moment, at least for me, of these are the people I want to be around. They're you know making change. They're thinking about the right questions. They're putting this into practice and actually figuring out how to build a different food system while they're still 18 years old. Right. Um, it was a pretty, pretty amazing place to get to meet each other and work and sort of start our future together. Yeah, no, I mean, and then, so how did it, because that's great. And then usually what happens is people graduate and then they go into other things other than, you know, supply chain and procurement. Um, I mean, just as not, not usually, but like, I, it's unusual. I think that both of you ended up going into that as your actual career because you took the academic and sort of the theory and, and you applied it to real world, very large companies, um, helping them make more sustainable choices through their supply chain, which could not be a more direct impact. Um, and so how did that end up happening? Oh yeah. I mean, it is really rare. Like it is so crazy. And these are not words that I think Taylor or I knew, like when I grew up, I did not say I wanted to be in supply chain. Right. But you know, we were both in this space where everyone was sort of telling us like, you can go work at Greenpeace. You can go work for an mm-hmm. nonprofit. There right. wasn't really a pathway forward. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like it's, it's a, it's a cool thing that it ended up for one of you, but for both of you, it's even cooler, right? Cause you, it is, it gets very heady and very academic and very right. theoretical and, and legal and, you know, but it doesn't usually go into like procurement, which I think is cool. And I think sort of to expand on what Maddie shared, we didn't even know the term supply chain existed. Mm-hmm. What we knew is we loved working with farmers. We loved bringing the like logistics of bringing their weekly food to campus. Right. And there was this underarching thesis and hypothesis that the ways you could make change are through purchasing power and policy. Yep. And policy at the time felt like it would take forever, you know, to hold a decade later. We're still in a lot of the same places. And there was something about the purchasing aspect, which, again, I did not have the language to understand, but but felt like the most direct impact. And to say, I think, you know, to fall in love with a profession so early, I'm still amazed at. And for Mm -hmm. something that even in the past couple of years, sort of through the the COVID pandemic, I, I feel as if supply chain finally has a stage where 
people are yeah. just beginning to understand all the ways that supply chain can impact their life. There should be a meme of like supply chain <laughs> as a character, like being excited right that now. like people finally know who they are. <laughs> like what's the, what are my kids, you know, they're all talking about like the non movable player or something like, it's something like that, but I can't. Right. I, I also feel very old right now, but anyway, you know, supply chain's always been this thing in the background that people are like, huh, but you know, it has gotten, um, it's gotten, it's, you know, it's due, it's due attention in the last couple of years. So skipping forward a couple of years, you know, you're working at companies like Chipotle and Imperfect Foods and Fresh Direct and Daily Harvest. And I mean, going into jobs like that thinking, I would say probably, um, somewhat idealistically is my guess. And, you know, coming right out of college and kind of going into that world, what were some of the, I guess, big takeaways that you learned working in these big companies? I mean, 300 plus million people in the United States, our system is not necessarily a stellar one. I guess, what were some of the takeaways and then what were some of the tools that maybe you yeah. leveraged um, to, to lean into that purchasing power? Because I agree, like I didn't go into policy. I was in policy and then I opened a cooking school because I did feel this like power of the consumer, unfortunately, was going to be quicker and bigger than the power of policy, um, yeah. which is it is what it is. So curious what you guys took away. Yeah. And we both kind of operated in these roles of getting to build out true value chains in supply chain, right? So connecting with growers, bringing their products to consumers. And, you know, in my case, it was through restaurant groups like Dig In, Chipotle, and Maddie's mm-hmm. case, it was merchandising them, you know, online through Fresh, Fresh Direct right. or Perfect. But mm-hmm. we both operated with this foundational belief that no farmer, no producer gets into this business or keeps their family operation running for four plus generations to ruin their community or to mm-hmm. deplete their soil, right? Or to contaminate mm-hmm. their watersheds. These are people mm-hmm. who work in food and agriculture every right. day and really believe and take pride in the fact that they are feeding people. Mm-hmm. And what we felt and sort of what we came to you know, realize is the issue... And the big takeaway for us was that so many corporations or these larger organizations have just found ways, you know, every which way to cut corners. Right. And it's the cutting of these corners that results in the, you know, tragic consolidation or the lack of financial stability for anyone, but in the executive suite that has just ruined this American food culture. Yeah. And so we see it now with Anytime Spritz where, you know, it's cutting corners to use natural flavors instead of real Mm -hmm. ingredients or people who want to consolidate their purchasing, work less with vendor, work with less farmers. And so maybe just consolidate all their purchasing to one aggregator. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these takeaways of cutting corners or not using real ingredients to, to bring flavor, um, you know, it, it all comes back to the fact that supply chains, when done well, without cutting corners, actually have the ability to sort of flip the whole thing on its head mm-hmm. and build organizations and food systems that support people and the planet. That, I think, for us was sort of the, what does it look like to say cutting corners isn't an option and where are we going to you know put our stake in the ground and most importantly can we walk away from this thing and actually leave our world in a better place because of our decisions right uh, have it be rooted from day one yeah and it's funny because i was talking to someone today about um ways that companies are you know preserving cash and part of the you know, part of the context of the discussion is that CPG companies right now, you know, I mean, we were never highly, you know, super high margin businesses to begin with. Um, and now we have, you know, 
the funding tap has kind of like, you know, drip, drip, dripped to almost a, right. a yeah. nothing. You know, we are, labor is, is significantly more expensive at a lot of the production facilities, you know, drivers at the supermarket level, um, ingredients, you know, between climate change, making some ingredients just not possible, war, you know, everything's just absolutely on the on the sort of input side really hard and now we have a consumer who i mean is as you know we've talked about on this show and obviously i'm preaching to the choir who's been trained systematically over the last 70 years to devalue what we're putting on the shelf now it's even more so because they're freaked out and 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 they're being told by, you know, the newspapers that food companies are taking advantage of them, that there really isn't, you know, it really isn't that bad. And we're all just raising prices because, you know, I mean, again, we're not lumped in with some of the bigger companies, but it's a really, really hard time to convince people that there is value in something that might be a little bit more premium or a little bit more expensive. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering, you guys know that going in, how are you thinking about sort of educating consumers that it is important where their alcohol comes from, that these things do matter? And I'm just wondering, like, are you significantly more premium than what they're used to or have you found a way to to sort of balance it out so it's not too too much for them to you know to go for yeah no makes total sense there's a lot in that question and you know i think we start with like the landscape is really complicated right now um everything from like what's on the shelf to what's going on politically to what's going on in the supply chain like it's not easy Mm -hmm. um but it never has been Mm -hmm. (laughs) or caught up with people and so for us, you know, you sort of mentioned it, but we've had really incredible learning grounds and foundations at some of these larger companies where we came into this right. pretty much as experts in the food system and understanding what would make up the product. Um, you know, we think a lot about sort of going back to like the takeaways, like all food and Bev is really an agricultural product. Um, right. and that, like we don't mean to be flippant, but, you know, wine comes from grapes um, yeah. if you think about that, you're, and you think about what you're shopping for in the store. And if you're already shopping for organic, you know, fruits and vegetables in the grocery store, if you actually think about what is making up your CPG right. product or your value added product, whether it's, you know, wine, a cocktail, something packaged in the grocery store, you might think a little differently if you think about what the core ingredient is. Right. It's um, even funny because I was talking to Alec from Alex Ice Cream yeah. and he was giving me the del- like the delta between like the number of consumers that shop for organic milk yes. versus the number that look for organic ice cream. Exactly. <laughs> He's like somehow or another their values about organic just kind of go like a little bit haywire when it comes to ice cream and it's so ironic right because it's all sort of intensified in the cream, right? Like you (laughs) think that people might be a little bit more concerned because it's, you know, this reduction almost of everything, you know, good and bad, right. In these products, you know, it's like when you're talking about wine, but it's just interesting. We just haven't, the consumer just doesn't, hasn't gotten to that yet. I think they're, they're getting there, but you know, it's slower. So go on. Yes, you're right. Like these are all agricultural products. Yeah. They're all agricultural products. And, you know, so much of the interesting part of what you're sort of talking about here with alcohol is it's actually by design that you're not looking at what's in it. Um, you know, it's the alcohol is regulated by the TTB, which is overseas alcohol, tobacco and firearms, weirdly. Yes. Um, and they, you know, they actually create these rules and regulations that don't require any ingredient labeling. And mm. for food people, and, you know, we're talking about looking at what's in your product. That's crazy that, you know, mm-hmm. we come from this, know what you eat, look at the ingredients, know what you're putting in your body and the alcohol regulations don't require any of that. Mm. Um, and so, so much of our education that we're doing is we're actually extremely transparent and we put every ingredient on our product. Um, right. So all of our canned cocktails have every ingredient and all of them you have in your kitchen. 
Um, there's nothing hidden in there. They're all real ingredients. Um, and so much of that is, you know, we're really trying to remove this black box or remove this uh, lack of value or lack of education that consumers might have. Because if we put the ingredients right on the front of the can, you're going to notice it. And then you'll start noticing that you don't know what in everything else is. Right. Um, is there a different, is there different labeling requirements for, let's say like a grape soda versus a grape flavored alcoholic spritz completely regulated by a different part of the federal government right. exactly <laughs> and totally different requirements on labeling exactly um there's different requirements for beer to spirits to wine even within that world but right. all alcohol products are regulated by a different industry than your standard call it grape soda um, right. or you know non-alcoholic product right Fascinating. And so I know that I know you, you know, the two of you were in lockdown and you were trying to make Campari and that didn't quite work, although I'm sort of fascinated. And I, say the least. <laughs> like, I feel like that would be really fun to try. Maybe we can all hang out and try <laughs> again because I happen to love anything bitter like that. But and so this kind of, you know, the two of you in your <laughs> supply chain brains kind of also like drinking, came up with this together. Um, what was the thing that sort of made you look at each other and say, yeah, okay. We're you know, it. we, and this sort of goes back to some of our process too, in terms of uh, ingredient labeling for our products. But we, at the time, beginning of the pandemic, I did something crazy and I bought half of a cattle and was just like, I'm committed to only purchasing exceptional meat. I had just right. spent a ton of time with some grass-fed ranchers. And yep. I was like, Maddie, we have to make our way through this cattle, you know? It's like, correction, uh-huh. Taylor never told me. And so I came in one day. I was like, excuse me, I think there's half a cattle at our front door. What is this? It was a mistake. Anyway, but so that sort of prompted this, you know, the time that we had, we just really, you know, we were cooking more than we ever had before. Mm-hmm. And really just wanted to learn about everything in our pantry. And yes. we were kind of had this moment of shock and a little bit of embarrassment between ourselves that we are food and ag people. And when we looked at our bar cart, we were just like, wait, mm-hmm. what is, what's in here? Mm-hmm. And so we started reading about Campari at the time we were drinking Campari sodas way too early in the day. <laughs> and you know, we bought, I want to say like $500 worth of botanicals, had right. 30 mason jars lined up in the kitchen, you know, only waited two weeks, mistake number one, to try everything. And uh. it was just awful. <laughs> and we're kind of just like, well, we'll let Campari, you know, stick to that. Uh, <laughs> They've got it. They've got it down. And at some point, like, something else. They're doing you know, yeah. yeah, it's probably not made of anything I want to know, but you know, for, for COVID it's funny because my son, like during lockdown at 5 PM every day, my son would come in to my office with a Paloma. And, um, I was always like, (laughs) I mean, he's in college or he was in college at the time. So I didn't, it wasn't like my four-year-old came into the room. Like here's mommy's booze. That's what I was sort of hoping. Yeah, I know. That's why I qualified it. I just don't, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure people are used to me talking about more personal things. But anyway, I had this like, I really needed that drink at five o'clock. And also I felt like adding the grapefruit made it healthy. <laughs> so I was like, I'm balancing out my um, my sadness, I guess, with, you know, at least I'm giving myself some vitamin C. Anyway, it just took me back the two of you, I'm just picturing the two of you kind of mad science vibes with, you know, 30 mason jars that are bubbling away, growing things. And, you know, you're like frantically rummaging through your bar carts and you're, you know. It really came back to this. What if we could just build, uh, you know, a canned beverage in the same way that we would any recipe, right? We take ingredients that we know work together. We take flavors that we know work together and just be fully transparent the whole time. There was never a moment for us where we didn't 
didn't know our ingredients would fully be listed on our product. And right. while this while this sounds crazy, when we were actually getting our labels approved, the which you have to do for all alcohol, the government approves every label. Yeah, every mm-hmm. label has to make sure that it really sort of checks every single box, and mm-hmm. except for what's in it, completely <laughs> like star star right. star. And what actually happened is they sent back our labels and they said, you're putting, you're, you're including too much information, mm-hmm. right? You just need to bucket all, you do not need to share your ingredients and you just need to bucket this into natural flavors. And we went back and forth with them, which was, I think for us, like the first moment we just really were, if we can't get this through, then we can't run this business, right? right? We will not put out a product that just bulk groups, natural flavors, which does not represent our product. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, you know, I think if not the first for them, but we just pushed back and all of our, every single ingredients listed. Um, and it just speaks to how that industry and regulatory arm is designed to put everything into a black box, right? You're right. designed not to know. Did you look around? I mean, I would imagine you looked at some other canned spritz type of things, alcohol, non-alcohol, maybe even some CBD, et cetera. Like, were you assessing the market at all and thinking about, you know, some big takeaways, some red flags, some green flags, where you fit into that? And, and I guess, I guess what, what were some of them? Yeah, we definitely looked around and, you know, I think a couple, there's so much we could say here, but sort of to, to distill it down, Mm-hmm. The canned alcohol market started to pick up at this point. It was starting to boom. We were starting to see this sort of new beginning. And at the same time, and, and that sort of excited us, but like, you know, we were, again, mad scientists in our kitchen making mm-hmm. bizarre alcohol, trying to make Amaro. We were really excited by this sort of uptick in all the D2C better for you products, right? There mm-hmm. was better for you pet food, all of your baby food upgrade your kitchen supplies, get new mm-hmm. shampoo that's customizable to your pH and your zip code and your air pollution, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Everyone was starting to pay attention to not just organic fruits and vegetables, but also every single product you might put in your body, but also on your body. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of a huge marker to us of people are really starting to care beyond what we were used to in the sort of yeah. food space about better for you and sustainable ingredients. Um, and, you know, again, everything from clothing companies now talking about their right. cotton and all of this, that was growing so tremendously. This canned alcohol m- market was growing, but the overlap was so, the void right. was so big between them. Right. And there were so many brands building, uh, you know, commitments to mitigating climate change, but there was no one putting at the center of a beverage product, agriculture and climate at the center of that. And that was for us this huge, if no one is doing that, we can do that. Yeah. I mean, there's literally no one better to do it. Um, I mean, I hope you still wear goggles. (laughs) Because I am weak. (laughs) Okay. I mean, kind of like it. All right. We're going to take a little break and then we're going to come back and talk about launching. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm back with Taylor Lanzette and Maddie Rotman, co-founders of Anytime Spritz. Okay, so again, a 
apologies. I don't really understand the world of alcohol distribution, but I did think that you, it was like either through alcohol distributors or, you know, grocery was separate and I didn't think you could sell direct. I have no idea. So what are the rules about distribution? Is there like a level of alcohol where it's okay to be in grocery stores? In some states, grocery stores do have alcohol, but in other states you can't sell. I I don't know. So, (laughs) and I don't need like a big, I know that's a big question, but you know, just maybe just distill it down again so that I know where we're. Yeah. So the alcohol world is is regulated by, in the U.S., by the three-tier system. Again, cue archaic legislation here. But it's the system for distributing alcohol that was set up after prohibition. Mm -hmm. So you could either be a producer, a distributor, or a retailer. Those are the three tiers. Mm -hmm. And And you can't be both. Exactly. And so the the basic structure of the system, right, is that you're a producer, you can sell to a distributor, you're a distributor, and you can sell to a retailer. A retailer then sells to a consumer. And so even, you know, when you think about potential here for uh, margin innovation, right, Mm -hmm. the system is designed where producers and, and early brands really have to be pressure tested in a way unlike other CPG or better for you products that day one, right, can just open Mm -hmm. up a web page and sell directly to their customers. Yep. And so you have this really intense consolidation where most alcoholic beverage brands are owned by, you know, a suite of five major global conglomerates. Mm -hmm. And on top of that basic three-tier structure, you have pretty much 50 different countries operating within the entire country. Yeah, state <laughs> can regulate differently. So yeah. there's often a joke, right, that if you if you sell and you know produce alcohol in the state in in the United States, you have 50 laws to learn, right, to be able to do it successfully. Right, it's and like sales tax. It's it, yeah. it, it, it's sales tax. It's some stores, right? You right. Know, in California, you can sell spirits in the grocery store. In New York, you can't have chain retailers selling alcohol, right? right. Only yeah, someone was saying that in their Whole Foods in Texas, they shop with a glass of wine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? Like, A, that sounds amazing. But B, like that just, I've never seen that. Like I, I'm, I'm such a New Yorker. I guess I've never seen that. And we'll take a field trip to another state, and we'll all go drink through the grocery store. Yeah, I mean, doesn't that sound like a great way to spend your afternoon? Just like a great way to probably buy more and spend more. Of course. I mean, I'm surprised. Like New York hasn't been like, yeah, folks. Like clearly, like this will be a basket builder. I'm, I'm surprised. But I guess maybe meet your friends for a drink and go shopping together. You know. I mean, there are people who. I mean, as everyone who listens to this knows, I love the grocery store. I've always loved the grocery store. We're like this breed of people that just love the grocery store. I I understand there are people that really don't, but there are people who really do. And if you add, like, I can also have a cocktail while I'm walking through the grocery (laughs) store with my friends, that sounds amazing. My, my favorite thing yeah. to do when I travel, or especially in other countries, I must go to multiple grocery stores. Yes. It's like the only way to truly understand what I is I mean, happening. totally. I was just in Montreal and I, I mean, I, fortunately, like my partner also really likes to go to food stores and grocery stores. So the two of us, I think it was like, I don't know, like two and a half hours. And he's just like in the cookie section and I'm in the condiments and the seasoning yeah. section. And we just met up like two hours later, like that was amazing. <laughs> that was just amazing. Like, did you have the best time? And like, yeah, he was like, I had the best time. And you know, then we went on our way. Um, anyway, back to you. So three tier system. Yeah. And so we launched in California and New York May 1st. And you had to launch with a distributor? Exactly. So Got it. Okay. part of the challenge here, and you know, I'm sure many CPG brands can relate to this, right? We're in the inventory game, right? So we produce inventory, have to deplete it, produce it again. 
And what makes it so challenging in alcohol is that we can't get that distributor until we have product produced. Oh, it was just like, you know, I think if we could look back two years ago, we would have been like, wow, we really got into one of the hardest spaces. Yeah. Even choosing spirits over wine, mm-hmm. it's slightly easier to navigate wine legislation, wine laws and regulatory issues versus spirits, which is also one of the things that we've really struggled with where we have a product that's 5%. And so it's technically lower than a, a, a bottled wine product, but many states now are even beginning to explore updating their sort of regulatory uh, processes to say, okay, if you're a RTD cocktail, that's mm-hmm. less than 10%, you can be distributed through wine and beer distributors versus somebody who holds a full spirit license. Ah, okay. So, so that looks good for you. It looks good. And I think it also really speaks to just the changing landscape, right? That RTD is here to stay. For sure. And even how much it's grown outside of just the malt seltzers into these spirit-based cocktails, it really is putting a nice, healthy amount of pressure around, let's update this and allow space for some of these smaller brands who want to get in. So you started in, so is it one distributor that is in New York and LA, or is it two different distributors? One's in New York, one's in LA. So yeah, you can have, I mean, again, some of this nitty gritty, but in New York, you can only have one distributor. In California, you could have as many as you want. Like it just Mm. gets so layered and complicated. We launched with the same distributor and have updated since then to have someone in New York who's much more focused on on New York York. itself. But you know, it's, it's a tough situation. And I think it sort of speaks to again, sort of our ethos all the way back to the beginning is how can we put agriculture at the center? And you realize how hard and complicated the alcohol space is. And this is why it's like one of the reasons it's like you get into some of the weeds and it becomes so difficult and people just want to keep cutting corners because it's so hard, just make it easier. But we've sort of stuck to, we're going to keep changing the supply chain in this way. Um, We have to sort of learn these rules. And you know, to, to go back to your earlier question, Allie, the, we launched with the pretty early decision that we wanted to be an in-person retail mm-hmm. brand. Right. Uh, we, we knew we could learn to navigate D to C, but we had seen so many D to C brands scale. And then all they want to do is learn how to turn their supply chain or change to get into retail. Into retail. Yep. Right. Yeah. And you just see that time and time again, that their systems are not designed like that. The amount of money spent on acquisition is right. just such a different landscape. And the, our point of conversion is having people try our product, right? Yep. You lead with delicious. And when you're in a store and have a slew of options to choose in a crowded space, We knew if we focused on retail where we could have people taste or be at events where people can taste, we we truly know, right, sort of that's our determination that like we can change customer purchasing and build loyalty around our flavor. And so we we took a retail focus where we have some of these more boutique discovery stores Mm -hmm. than our our goals from the beginning with scaling our agricultural practices is really around, you know, national scale beyond. Right. And so we're in a couple really awesome partners right now, like Total Wine and More, uh, Fresh Direct, Mm. and some others that where if we can get some of that, you know, we get tasting, it's called liquid to lips, right? And we can, we can <laughs> customer habits. We're, we're pretty confident that that allows us to, to really take a national approach and scale, which mostly impacts our farmers. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this goes back to sort of the marketing discussion. You know, it's, I think about this all the time because there's a balance, right? You don't want to kind of put all of your eggs in these very bespoke, hard to scale, um, but very intimate experiences. If people then can't buy it over and over and over again, because basically you have paid a lot to acquire that customer and then they don't have the opportunity to get it. And so you know, even if they want it and they love it, you know, there's, there's only so much hunting someone's going to do 
for a product. On the other hand, you don't want to do too much sort of like big wide, you know, marketing either, because then you're not building that real connection to the brand. And so it's like, you're balancing out all of these things. You don't want to go too wide with distribution if you haven't built the loyalty, but you also don't want to build loyalty if it doesn't then ladder to, you know, a repeat purchase essentially. Um, And so I guess you're very focused, my guess is, in these two markets where you have distribution, where you're in stores, and then you're building, it almost seems like little like points of happiness (laughs) around those centers. And from the looks of it, just from the outside, it looks like you're just trying to really build a community, you know, be in the right places where someone who's going to really understand your product is there and then give them the opportunity to just make it a part of their life. That's exactly right. I mean, we sort of going back to our market research, like so much of alcohol is meet customers where they are. People are Mm -hmm. not really trying to buy alcohol in bulk online Mm -hmm. uh, and stock up. We really knew that people were shopping for alcohol on their way to a party when they're making dinner and they're grocery shopping right now, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of on the way to the beach or on the way to the pool party or on the way to the kid's birthday, you know, for all the parents. And we really thought about that experience of when are you looking for this and how can we meet customers exactly where they shop and where they are? Um, and, you know, we actually added D2C or sort of e-commerce after the fact. So we right. launched more around for a month or two and then we added are online for the brand lovers. We had so many folks saying like, I love your product and I just can't get enough. Right, so, right. Okay, we'll, we'll ship flats. Like it's not really a discovery moment for most, but for people that love our product and are just obsessed and addicted and want to keep their fridge stocked at all times. And actually for events, um, we've got a lot right. of weddings and sort of, you know, um, it's really about just letting customers who love us be able to continue to shop and sort of that repeat purchase. But it's exactly that. I sort of love that you said moments of happiness. We really talk about (laughs) delight a lot, you know, like how do we just delight you and meet you truly, you know, in the store where like at total wine um, all month long, hanging out with our customers. And it's, it's really about meeting them there. Um, We even just did an event this past weekend in New York called Seltzerland. And it's, you know, it's in Greenpoint. It's, 20 brands all popping up and, you know, thousands of customers come to buy tickets and taste everything. And some of our favorite customers came up to us and said, I didn't think I even liked seltzer. I'm here to find something I like. And oh my gosh, this is it. Um, Uh, That's awesome. You know, and so really about meeting customers where they are and sort of letting them taste. And once they taste it, uh, that moment of seeing their sort of faces light up and like, this is what I want to be drinking. Mm -hmm. uh, That's what it's all about. Yeah, we actually just learned we won best overall earlier today. At Seltzerland? Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. It's one of those things where for us too, right? 2,000 people, we don't yeah. know where we can just, it's for us that proof of concept market research. We know that if we can lead with flavor and delicious, you, you get that moment where someone stops and says, I, I didn't know what I was expecting, but wow, that's delicious. Um you know, someone was mentioning that they drink a lot of seltzers or products just to, you know, get to a point of having a few drinks. And they're like, mm-hmm. if I drink anytime, I actually enjoy it. And we're mm. like, that's, that's all you need to do. Like mm-hmm. delight, relax, there's no pressure. And it was just, it's really validating for us in these early moments where we can, you know, engage with that many future customers and then be able to direct them to where to be able to purchase. So I remember when Oatly launched and we, I was proudly one of the only cafes in New York that carried them. Yes. And then I remember when like Oat Milk Gate of whatever year it was <laughs> happened. And like there were people in at Haven's Kitchen in the cafe, literally offering the barista like cash money for, <laughs> you know, anything they could get their hands on. And that was kind of, you know, obviously that wasn't intentional, but that was right when they launched into retail. But their their plan was, and I think a lot of 
you know, especially sort of plant-based milks and I think beverage in general, they sort of launch as a food service almost item first. Mm -hmm. They launch in these places where people are going who sort of fit that target demo away. And then after that, they they they're like okay fine you guys want it so bad here you go now we're on all these retail channels it's also a way of sort of proving it out to retailers saying listen we all the i mean we just want seltzer land and all these people want it um so is that is it like is it a step one step two or is it more of sort of a you're just going to be gathering points of distribution, whether it's event planners, bars, grocery stores, online marketplaces, or is it, um, okay, we really want to make sure that we've built out this and then yeah. we're going to go into that. And I'll start, and I'm sure Maddie will have some, some things to add, but the early entry point was really focused around retail, right? So folks mm-hmm. were buying cans to go. Um, we've struggled a little bit as a brand to find our place at bars and restaurants that have full cocktail programs. And yeah. so one of the things that really is core to the the anytime world is we will be launching uh, very soon in New York and California um, our... Uh, regenerative organic bottled spirits. So the vodka and gin that make up. Oh, I just got chills. Yeah. It's, (laughs) and you know, we know how important regenerative, regenerative agriculture is, but it it has to be rooted in organic principles, right. To have the impact. And so we've been working on this and why we're so excited about it is because we want to build that brand where, we can then engage with these bars and restaurants that, right. with our bottled spirits in a way that our, our can't just, it just maybe won't in the same way. That's and so, so cool. I have to tell you, I don't know if you've listened like to any of these, but like a long time ago, I interviewed the founder of Guayaquil and um, the Yerba Mate company. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because it was almost like the reverse. Like he had this like loose tea that, everyone was buying and became all the rage. And then all of a sudden it became summer and he, like his sales plummeted and he Mm. had to let go of people. And he was like, I guess I'll make an iced tea out of it. So he went from like bulk kind of vibes to RTD. It's interesting that you guys are kind of going from the spritz and then you're kind of going backwards into like, the thing that makes the spritz. I yeah. just think that's kind of cool. Yeah, we're definitely doing it, I think, conventionally backwards from, I think, a lot of brands. <laughs> and for so much of it for us was really about building that perfect cocktail that was low ABV, really sort of put our ethos mm-hmm. at the center of you can delight in what you're drinking and you can understand what's in it and have a great time. And mm-hmm. I think now, you know, our core has always been about the farmers and for us to understand that if we can build the spirits line, we can actually grow more land or sort of farm more regenerative organic land and have more impact. And so having different moments for consumers, uh, whether it's you're ready to, you know, go out to the barbecue and you want that full can cocktail or you're sort of right. at the bar and want a pre-made drink from a bartender who's a great mixologist, um, mm-hmm. treat the product really beautifully. Um, we're open to all of that. You know, we're very unpretentious in that way. We know that we can work with bars and restaurants who we love to, you know, we love to go there um, and drink. And then we can also have something that's already sort of perfectly. I mean, I think it's amazing. It really rounds out the whole thing. I'm curious. uh, Okay. So two things came to mind when you were talking too, because like Absolute has like tangerine and citrus and raspberry. Like, I mean... You could make the bottles of regenerative vodka with a hint of fruit that would, or is that not possible? So our, we have a gin that's uh, infused. It's, it's a sort of traditional, 
like <laughs> like basket vapor method with um, about 13 different organic botanicals and mm. one of the most delicious gins I you know confidently feel like I've ever had but also feel super accessible for somebody who's maybe wants it in a in a martini or you know right. a negroni or just a tonic. Okay, and that's very exciting. I'm a gin person, despite the Paloma. You're in good company. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's funny because you see some of these larger brands, right, that are, have flavored vodkas or it's what's called gross, yeah. ready to serve, right? So a full mm-hmm. cocktail in a bottle, which is also a, a growing category. And I think one yeah. that we're going to sort of watch and see. Mm-hmm. There's obviously something about the, the can in terms of you know, sessionability, you can open one, finish one versus right. some of the, the larger foolproof cocktails in large format. It's a little less sessionable in that way. Right. But the, the sort of key for us and will always be our, our core is, you know, everything we make has real ingredients and, you know, you could, you could hold up the botanicals that we use in your hands, right? We're, we're not hiding anything. And so there could easily be a future in which we're, um, infusing, you know, our yuzu peels, for example, mm-hmm. you get a yuzu flavored gin. Um, and I think for now we'll stay away from anything that, you know, that flavor does not come from a real ingredient, right. but you're, you're spot on that. Like the, the really what we could do with it, the world's our oyster. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, it's funny. Cause I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, festivals and you know, you have two totally different ways of getting into people's brains and hearts. Um, it's just very cool. It's really good stuff. What do you think, I guess, for each of you, Taylor, we'll start with you. What do you think has been the biggest delight, to use your words, um, in this launch couple of months and learning curve and what would you say has been surprisingly or like more frustrating than perhaps you anticipated? Uh, the, the biggest delight has definitely been people trying the product who maybe never um, would have picked up a, a seltzer or a canned product and really you, you could see their mind working in the ways that they would be able to enjoy mm-hmm. this in their day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. And the their feedback on the flavor has just been so motivating from this early stage, right? It, it helps put the, you know, not nose on sales to to deal with them another time, and it you know the, the tough conversations around distributors. But like, we we didn't sacrifice on flavor from day one, and we never will. And and that the feedback has really sort of solidified that. Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest challenges and so many founders go through this and it, you get so much feedback and it is really hard to learn, especially in, in this space, what feedback to take mm-hmm. and what feedback yeah. to, to filter through. And, you know, yeah. we had someone, you know, who said, you know, what are you doing in this space? Your last name isn't Diageo. And mm-hmm. it's like, That's nice. right. Like, you're <laughs> yeah. like, okay, thank you so much. Thank you so but, much for your feedback. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think it's, it's really in these moments, it's, it's really amazing to have the sort of support of a, a co-founder, right. Where you can say, we trust our gut here, or, you know what, I, this, I just don't know if that's what's right for us. And um, yeah. so that's something where I feel like it definitely, I want to talk about it more with other founders where, not advice and feedback. No, that's a really good one. I mean, I remember even at the cooking school, people would be like, you need to open this in Connecticut. And I'd be like, I really don't. (laughs) Thank you. Or like, you need to make this muffin, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, thank you so much. You know, but then there were things for me, the rules always like, you know, if it starts to pop up a lot, like, you know, it's like when you're writing a term paper and you just have, I mean, again, I'm aging myself, but the way that I used to write a term <laughs> paper is like, I wrote a fact on one side of an index card and on the back, I wrote the source. And then I would, I had, you know, 300 index cards. Yes, this, I was, the, yeah, mm-hmm, I did not have a computer. And <laughs> 
um, I would lay them all out on my floor and then I would start to like put them into buckets and piles and be like, oh, wait, there's something like there's a theme emerging here. And then I would kind of move the ones that didn't work into the, the buckets aside. Like they might be a brief mention, but they weren't like what the thesis ended up being. And they didn't like support the main gig right. that I was talking about. That's how I think about feedback. You know, I'm sure both of you are fully available and open to hear, you know, you're curious and you're, and you're enterprising and you're not going to be like, no to everything. And so my only thought is like when there's a pattern and things start to kind of bubble up to the top a lot, or you hear the same thing sort of over and over, that's when you, you're like, I should probably pay attention to this. And then, you know, the other things are like the note cards that I put over on the side a little bit. And maybe exactly. there's a little brief mention of them, or maybe they just don't make it into the term paper. Yeah. And I know this isn't my answer, but like there's there's some great advice. And then it's just fi filtering out the bad stuff. You know, like we get a yeah. lot of advice and talk to a lot of people because yeah. we want to learn. We're curious, but it's just being able to admit that not everyone's advice we have to take. <laughs> no, that's for sure. And I think what, what we're all starting to realize, I mean, this sort of cohort of founders these days is that what worked for you, amazing founder who had exactly. an amazing story, exit, whatever, was probably unique to you and that, and that doesn't mean that your playbook is exactly the playbook. It just means that it worked for you. And there were so many circumstances and so many outside things that were going on that shaped that experience that it probably is good advice. It just might not apply, you know? Totally. And I mean, can, can I say my answers backwards now? Yes. <laughs> I think definitely. my challenging one is like, there is no playbook for what we're doing. Right. And there's many times where we'll call on folks to get advice or get thoughts and things. We're like, well, no one's done this before. And that's why we're building it. And it sort of mm -hmm. takes a few times and just reminders. And again, grateful for a co-founder to just, you know, we, we talk about it a lot, but it's, there is no playbook and that's both why I'm doing this, but also right. hard. Yeah. Um, and I think that my sort of delight to say something different than Taylor's because very shared experiences that first time that we did our first production and just being in the room of the thing that we've been tasting mm. bubbles over and building for so long and tweaking and doing, you know, crazy plane trips in the middle of COVID when we, flying was so scary to go mm -hmm. visit our distillers and all of these crazy things we've been building for so long um, to get to be in the room and see walls and walls and walls of cans that were yeah. so much taller than us with the design that we'd finally built that was just, there's nothing like that. And we'll probably never get something like that because the first time is kind of the yeah. special one. Um, now I mean, I got to say, I every time I go to the co-packer, I yeah. get choked up. Mm. I can't believe that it's, I can't believe it's a real product. Yeah, I can't believe people are actually making it. I, I can't believe all this stuff that we talk about, like here it is, these are, the, that's yeah. the oregano you know, it's just, I don't know. It's, I, I, it, you're right in the sense of the first time, but I would say it hasn't really gotten old. And then you're going to make new products and yeah. new things and meet, you know, new partners. And, you know, it's what keeps us going. I think, I think the two of you hit the nail on the head, right? Because what makes all of the sort of challenge worth it are these two sort of almost opposite ends of the spectrum. It's yeah. people loving it. And the fact that this is an actual tangible thing that you can produce, you know, exactly. it's crazy. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I, I thank you um, so much for coming on. This was so much fun. My office has a bunch of any time, like in the fridge. Actually, I think Matt is having an event tonight and I think we have some ready for his awesome. folks. Um, it really is delicious. It's a beautiful brand. You're both awesome. And um, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Ali, thank you so much. We're um, 
big chimichurri households over here. So thank you for making a beautiful product that goes great with our spritzes. <laughs> ah, thank you. Well, we'll do like a, I don't know, we'll have to do some sort of a partnership where you drink and you eat chimichurri, but we need a third partner. <laughs> yeah. Someone should, yeah. Someone DM me if you want to be in on the party. Um, Liam, as always, thank you for engineering today's show and, um, folks, you folks, I will be back next week with another episode of in the sauce. In the sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to heritage radio network, food radio supported by you keep in touch at heritage radio slash subscribe.